from West to East and Kingdom to Kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just dandy. How are you, Michael? <laughs> I I hope I am continuing to do well. So yes. once again, you know, this is a pre-recorded episode as I continue to recover from my surgery. So and I'm hopefully giving a lot of attention to the cat that is meowing at my door right now and um, recovering. <laughs> so, oh, I, well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do, I was trying to figure out what what are some of the perfect summertime films I wanted to watch. I just wanted I just felt from everything that's going on in the world, I, I wanted to be able to watch something that was just pure escapism and fun. And I started watching a series that I haven't watched since I introduced the films to our children. And that's the Indiana Jones films. And I forgot how much fun they are, you know, um, so well yeah. done and, and, and it's just so intricate. I mean, the storylines and, uh, I mean, and, and boy, you know, Steven Spielberg wasn't fooling around. I mean, there's violence and I mean, it's in your face, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, and I know, mm-hmm. I, I, it's not even just Steven Spielberg on it. I mean, George Lucas and, and him were, I mean, they were partners on it. I know, I know Spielberg gets the credit as the director, but I mean, this, this was the, this was their child that they, they made together. And it's, I, I feel like part of that violence that, that came through in it and that the, you know, that next step, it almost was like, it, it seemed like it was a way that George Lucas was able to, to get that out there considering he didn't really go down that route with star Wars. And, but you, you were a hundred percent, right. Uh, we, it's been a while since I've watched all of the movies. I mean, when I say a while, I mean like two years because I do, <laughs> I watch them very frequently, but we watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, maybe, uh, two months ago for Kylie's first time ever seeing it. The oh, whole wow. way through. And, it's you know that's for me that's a, a top twenty movie for sure. It's it's one of the best ever made. Yeah, and it's interesting because then you see elements that they put into the Indiana Jones attraction at Disneyland, even the music from Temple of Doom. But I got to tell you, that Temple of Doom, I couldn't stand the Cape Capshaw Cap character when I first saw it, and and she it just gets worse. With every yeah. time I watch it, how how she how he, she attracted Steven Spielberg, I don't know. And God bless them that they're still married. But oh dear Lord, 
I mean, and then at the end, when when Indiana Jones seems to be attracted to her, I thought, okay, you've been in the ruins way too long. If, if this shrill, shrieking woman is attractive to you, <laughs> yeah, I it's you know what all I can say about uh, about Temple of Doom is at least once uh, Crystal Skull came out, it no longer had to be the worst. Uh, <laughs> The worst Indiana Jones movie of the bunch. So yeah, and 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 there were only a three. So saying worst is you know, it's still good. It's still really good. But um, in in Temple of Doom was never a bad movie, but Mm -hmm. there was a lot of obnoxious parts. Uh, There was a lot of parts that you know just they were uncomfortable to me as a kid, not because of (laughs) gore or anything, just the portrayals that they did in the movie. But uh, I, it's, you know, I, I actually, there's times where I prefer it to, I I prefer it to last crusade. Even last crusade. I think I was probably too young when I watched that. And Mm -hmm. so it felt overly long to me as a kid. And, so it's I, I've always been Raiders first, and then I kind of bounce back and forth between Temple of Doom and and Last Crusade, and then yeah. Crystal Skull. That was I think that was one of the oh, first times dear. I was actually disappointed in a movie. <laughs> that that was disappointing. That's where I, I like the Last Crusade. Um, I like the interplay between Sean Connery and Harrison Ford. I like the fact that we find out Indiana Jones was a, a Boy Scout. And I thought he was superbly played by River Phoenix. I mean, River Phoenix, really, you believe he's a young indie. And, um, and, 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 you know, and I was a scoutmaster at the time, and my son was a scout. So I, I liked the fact they brought in Boy Scouts. I thought that was terrific. But, and it explained, you know, some fun things like how he got his fear of snakes and the scar and all that. So it was cute. It was, you know, a little fan service there. But, um, so I enjoyed it. And, you know, they went back to, you know, looking for a, a huge artifact instead of a rock and, you know, with the Holy Grail and all that. So I thought it made it more significant, his search and all that. But, um, yeah, but I think for um, me it's just the re it feels like it's retreading a lot of things mm-hmm. that made Raiders of the Lost Ark good. And that's why I've always you. been like, uh it felt kind of overly long as a kid, but it's still, it's really, it's still superb. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, Crystal Skull, I remember when I was sitting and I think I went with my daughter to see it. And when it came out and I was sitting there thinking, at what point, was there ever any point in the film that they knew they had taken a wrong turn? You know, I mean... And I know that it was because after, you know, I had heard that after Temple of Doom, um, Steven Spielberg, because parents said, parents were surprised by the amount of gore that were in it because they expected more of an Indiana Jones level violence. And and apparently, you know, moms wrote in and and said, what were you thinking of young children to this? And, you know, they're scarred for life. And um, so he backed off of that kind of filmmaking and you know he got and he started doing his serious films and then he went back to crystal skull and i just thought didn't he think at some point you know we're missing the mark here with this i i don't think so. he, he actually saw that i mean because this was also i mean it was 
years before, but I mean, remember in 2002, I think, when he he went back and altered parts of E.T. So yeah, uh, yep, you're right. He was making some crazy choices there in, in the 2000s. I've forgotten about that. You're right. Yeah, put in um, what's the walkie talkies? In the uh, police officer's hands. Yep. And, um, yeah, that replaced the guns. They added the scene where it was like E.T. was completely digitally recreated. And it was like a slapstick scene that they put him in. So the entire movie, it's, you know, everything looks normal. And then there's this. Well, no, because I think actually in the original, when it was in theaters, I think they tried to do as much CGI E.T. I, I, I know I saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm. when it oh, was I did released too. for that little while and then i got the dvd once it released and i did not watch the special edition at all i just was happy to have the the original cut on dvd it's like i i don't need to watch what i had to sit through in theaters again <laughs> uh, so anyways yes yeah, so, so i'm looking forward to them and i don't know i remember the young indiana jones series on tv was it sean Flannery or somebody was indie. It's too bad it couldn't have been River Phoenix, but um, but um, I don't. I think there was maybe two young Indiana Jones. I was think they, there? Like it, yeah, I think they ended up using a second one as well too. But um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, my I think it was Sean Patrick Flannery was one of them. Yeah, yeah, Again, and it's I, been so long. I don't have I've a strong memory of it. I don't even think I got through the series. And um, and I thought it was an interesting idea, but um, anyway, I don't know if that's still around somewhere. It used to be on Netflix. I want to say back in like 2010, 2011, and then <laughs> when they pulled it off, it hasn't been back on since. Oh, so okay. I'm sure there's a DVD set out there or something. But it's we, I, we I might know have that it. was the last time I saw any of it was was way. I mean, we're talking ten yeah. years ago now. <laughs> anyway, but but it was fun, and you know, it has this little Disney connection and all that. But it was a fun. It's a it's a, just a fun way to escape and all that so um anyway and as we've been reminding you the last few weeks we uh you know we, we're trying to, to resurrect story time with michael thanks to an idea from listener sean so rather than reading the the disney version of these stories we're going to read the original versions the grim fairy tales and and hans christian anderson fairy tales and then we'll talk about how disney you know go into a little about how walt and his team transformed these into the Disney version. But these are long, a little long stories. So, and there's not a lot of illustrations in the original um, stories. So we um, are asking those of you who, who are artists or like to do art, um, if you submit the illustrations that we can show for these stories. And we will, of course, give you full credit, the beginning and the end of each video and of course in show notes point people to your site if you have a site where you um, display and sell your art and so you can go on project gutenberg for these stories you can download them either to listen to them or download like a pdf of them and um, read them that way and so the ones that we're going to start with are the sleeping beauty in the wood cinderella or the glass slipper Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, The Brave Little Tailor. 
So, um, Craig, do you want to let listeners know if they're interested in this, how they can get involved? The uh, best way to to get involved with it is by getting in touch with us on email. So, Michael at wdwinfo.com and Craig at wdwinfo.com. Uh, just shoot us off an email. Make sure that we're both included and you know, we can start talking about everything that goes along with it, including, uh, you know, formats and how we're going to get it all together and sizing and in, you know, more, more details than, than we could ever possibly imagine, as well as, you know, details of what stories do we want to work on? Maybe standout scenes even that, that we, we think would look good. Maybe, maybe you think would look good too. So it's, uh, you know, just we need to continue the conversation and so. So that's the best way to do so. And then also, uh, if we're not answering emails for some reason and you feel like you can't get in touch with us that way, you can always go on Twitter and uh, use our Connecting Walt uh, Twitter and, and reach out to us that way and we'll we'll see it. Great. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing um, what our artists out there um, have for us so that we can bring back story time with Michael. Okay. Um we're well, you know, we're wrapping up our our interview with uh, Todd James Pierce, and you know, we've talked about the Man in Space series and and Ward Kimball's involvement on it. We've just touched lightly on it, but we we are going to do some in depth episodes on the whole Man in Space series because they were, as Todd discussed, they were very groundbreaking and had a strong influence in our space program. And so I know a lot of our listeners, you, if we're talking about something that is readily available for you out there to view, you like us to give you a heads up. So we've been letting you know that uh, two of the episodes of the Man in Space series are on Disney+, Plus, and that is the Man in Space and Mars and Beyond. So you might want to uh, you know watch those because we're wrapping up, like I said, our conversation with Todd, which means we are going to be launching into the Man in Space series. Oh, I just realized the pun. Um, the Man in Space series um, very soon. So, so if you've been putting it off, now is the time to do it. So, as I mentioned, we are wrapping up our conversation this week with Todd James Pierce. He's the author of the book. The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. And that, that, of course, is the biography about one of the most talented and complex of Walt's nine old men. And that's Ward Kimball. And, you know, in this episode, we're going to explore some of Ward's other interests outside of animation and what he did with his retirement years. When we were talking about television, his work on the Disneyland series, I remember when I was in high school, there was a television series he did. Didn't seem to last long. And, you know, I when I was really little, there was a television show called Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In mm-hmm. that I enjoyed. Then there was Ward's series, The Mouse Factory. And I loved this series because to me it felt like a Disney version of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. And what can you tell us about this series? Because I, I got it didn't seem to be highly respected within the studio. <laughs> um, no, most of the other animators um, flat out hated it. Um, and so this is a so this is also the way that that Kimball participates in that postmodern movement where art critiques art, or art critiques the message of art. And so what 
it's hard to describe what the mouse factory is if you've never seen the mouse factory it's um an ensemble show each show would have a, a guest host such as um uh dean jones um or kurt russell and then there would be a number of kind of sketch comedy segments that would happen after that and almost always on the mouse factory somewhere there would be a recut classic cartoon or sometimes multiple scenes from classic cartoons put together to new music um, sometimes with explosions or car crashes behind it and so it would take something that the older animators had worked on and had revered as part of um uh the important effort that they had contributed to the studio in their early work. And what Kimball was doing was um, making something humorous out of them. Um, in I think the show's 72, 73, right in there. Um, in, in the 1970s, it spoke to a different audience. And the other animators who had worked on those early shorts, you'd take early Mickeys and the Silly Symphonies and, and, and cut them up uh, for different effect, really didn't like that that Ward was in some sense destroying what they had done earlier to make something new. And that had a sarcastic tone to it in the early 1970s. So in the studio, that was not a very popular show, but I remember seeing it too. I, I was maybe more like six or seven. It's one of the early, early memories that I have of TV. Um, but I remember enjoying them quite a bit back then. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of episodes on YouTube. They're a bit grainy. One is, I think the host is Charles Nelson Riley, mm -hmm. and then I think there's a Halloween one with um, Phyllis Diller as yep. the host. And there's, so there's always a theme, and then mm -hmm. all this zaniness is is around the theme. And you're right, the heavily edited um, material from either the the feature films or the shorts. So are in there. So um, it's been a while since I've watched them. But there's a Smokers Anonymous meeting <laughs> that the Disneyland cartoon characters go to yes. at one point. I <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was bizarre. So anyway, now we've been doing a series on Epcot Center, and many of our listeners are looking forward to when we'll be talking about the Old World of Motion Pavilion. That was Ward's Pavilion. And he wasn't like Mark Davis, who, you know, was an animator that had a long history of working in the park. Ward didn't do a lot of work in the theme park. So how did he um, get involved in this pavilion? Well, he had done some he had done some work for um, WED. It was before it was WDI. It was WED. Uh, back in the 1970s. So one of the things that WED wants to produce over at Disneyland is a is a is a dark ride that um, is going to tell the the history and kind of the production craft of animation using the 1930s characters. And so Ward is initially brought onto that project because they need some gravitas. They need something to sell the project. They need to say, like, here's a person that worked in the 30s on these cartoons, and now he's working on this ride that's going to explain how the how the how the cartoons were created back then. And that's that's never that's that's never built. There's uh, multiple versions of that ride that are developed, including one for Epcot. Um, but after that. Um, Disney is working on those large uh, technology pavilions for Epcot Center. 
um, for 1982. And um, there's other people that have worked on uh, World of Motion, but uh, World of Motion in, in many ways becomes a, uh, at least in the show scenes areas, becomes very much a, a Ward Kimball attraction. Um, if you look at the types of films that he worked on when he had freedom, um, there are very much these essay features that tell the history of technology or the, you know, look to the future to, um, to give a reasonable guess of how technology is going to advance in the future. But he had told the history of um, autos in more than one movie that he made for Disney um, and victory over um, uh, victory through air power. Victory through uh, air power. Yeah. Yeah, Victor Throughout Power, he tells he has the sequence that tells the history of uh, flight and planes. And so um, this is like a perfect project for him. It's going to tell the, the history of, of, of travel from, you know, walking up to the present day. And so he gets to go in there and the, the figures that were in that ride look very stylized, like, you know, Ward Kimball's caricatures. Um the uh scene uh layout the um for the stages um i know other people worked on these too but they all remind me of the type of humor that ward um expressed in those essay nonfiction animations that he did in the 1950s and 1960s so it it, it was one of my favorite rides when it was there i, I would go on it over and over again um oh, so I, yeah absolutely really, craig and i well i don't know if craig remembers it i know i loved it and yeah, his humor was there, like, you know, when they had the crash and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the chickens were everywhere and, and all that. I mean, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it seems very much like it radiates a lot of his sensibilities inside of that attraction. I, I'm sad that it's gone. Yeah, me too. I think a lot of people are. Now, after retiring from the studio, what did Walt do? Um, what did Walt? What did um, Ward do during? Because um, he didn't have his art and everything to drive him. Yeah. He gets a little lost is what happens. Um, so he gets very involved in some hobby pursuits with, um, uh, antique toys and with, um, with, uh, model railroading. Um, and he says some not very flattering things about the studio and the people that are running it after, after Roy passes away in particular. So there's, there's a period where a lot of Walt's people are still left after Walt passes away. But after uh, Roy passes away, I think it's in December of 1971, um, at, at that point, there's really a new crowd that comes in and starts managing the studio. And they... Uh, take uh, personnel away from Ward. They shut down his projects and uh, Ward in very public ways goes out and says um, what he thinks of the people that are now running this, the studio, the um, card walkers and Don Tatum's and, and people like that. Um, and so at a certain point around 1976, I think that Ward realizes that maybe he's made a mistake and um, he has to say that, Maybe he has been misquoted in some of these interviews and that he didn't really mean to express himself that way, even though, quote to quote, over many interviews, he says the exact same thing. Um, so I, I think he's just trying to make amends by saying that perhaps he was misquoted in some of these sources. Um, and then he's come back in as, as um, 
kind of a representative of what the studio used to be in its early days. Um, he's sent out to um, schools to talk about the Disney studio. He, in 1978, he's sent on a train across country um, with Mickey as a celebration of Mickey's um, uh, 50th anniversary. And so he becomes um, a person that has a part-time job with WED on some ride development, but he comes becomes um, a popular spokesperson for what the studio used to be. And then other people of that generation, like Eric Larson, become much more the trainer of the of of the next generation of animators. And then uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston become uh, more of the technical spokespeople of for how animation developed. But in terms of the personality of the studio, what the studio life was like, that was Ward's role in terms of explaining that to um, people whose generations come after him. Okay. Yeah, now in the book, The Story of Walt Disney, Walt Disney calls Ward a genius, but many of us regard Walt as a genius. So um, why did Walt why did Walt call Ward a genius? I think because he's very – he also calls other people a genius. There's one point he calls Ken Anderson a genius as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I assume he calls Ward a genius because Ward is able to visualize things that don't exist very much like Walt is able to. And then he's able to work with those elements um, uh, and until they're until they're until they're finished that quote is the story of walt disney um off the top of my head i believe those interviews are done in either 1956 or 1957 so that quote um is offered um right at the same time that ward's working on these man in space films there was going to be four there was three that were finished and so at, at that point um Ward's also able to kind of look into the American psyche and to see that this space flight is going to be a possibility and then able to use the tools of animation in a way that really hadn't been used before as a way of uh, talking in a popular way about national policy and spending priorities to affect a change in terms of how the American government works. And so I think it's those types of things that Walt is likely pointing to because that's what happens at the time the quote is made in terms of Ward being a genius. Yeah. I remember, I think I read, it might have been your book, that where when we did land on the moon, which we just celebrated the 51st anniversary of that, I think Werner von Braun sent Ward a message saying, well, we we predicted this. <laughs> <laughs> it's um really, really, really close. It's the flight around the backside of the moon that, that he gets the call oh, on. Okay. Because um, that's what they do on the second uh, Man in Space um, film. Um, and so... Like one of the fascinating stories that came out of the letters that I went through of, of Werner von Braun. So I had all the correspondence that von Braun was sending back and forth with the production team. Um, Kimball's unit manages to come up with a little extra money. Um, off the top of my head, I believe it's a thousand dollars, which in 1955 dollars, I think the multiplier now is about nine. So you know, it's it's a chunk of money they they come up with simply to get. Von Braun to come up with the actual calculations. They don't need them. I mean, they could just, you know, chart their own path around the dark side of the moon where they're not going to be in communication with Earth for a number of minutes. But they 
pay them a, a fairly good chunk of money to come up with the actual calculations that this ship would likely take as it moves around the dark side of the moon. And then they try to make the film as accurate as possible with this set of coordinates that Von Braun spends weeks working up for them as though there's an actual flight. Um, and that's when he gets the call. It's like, you know, look, they, they've flown around the dark side of the moon and those calculations that were used for the animated TV show, they had live action in that one as well. But, you know, for your, for your cartoon Disney TV show, they're really close to what it is they've actually just done in real life now. That's amazing. Just amazing. So now when researching and writing your book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation, is there anything you learned about Ward that surprised you? Oh, all, all kinds of things I learned about word that surprised i don't know yeah i mean when you it took me i think about three three to four years to research and write the book and when you spend that much time most every day (laughs) looking at the same person's life i think there's a lot of things that that you'd learn about anyone that would that would surprise you um probably the largest one is that um i even at the end of his life, after having all of this success um, in the Disney community, uh, this is a person that we uh, generally, I think, deeply revere. There's, you know, a train that goes around one of the castle parks that has his name on it. Um, and so mm-hmm. he's been, you know, really well recognized. Um, he has screen credits. Um, he, 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 there were tv shows that featured him in the 1970s and 1980s and so this is a person that's really been lionized um and so one of the things that really surprised me is um uh what a deep sense of failure that he felt about his own life um even in his last years um because the initial ambitions that he had for himself as an artist was that he was going to be a fine artist that he was going to be recognized by the gallery and museum community and what a large sense of disappointment he had over that, even in kind of the final gasps of that when he's doing these kinetic projects, um, that he could never really bring himself to to see what he'd done as a tremendous type of success because he wasn't able to uh, find the success on the terms that he'd wanted. Um, and so that was one of the things that I learned about him. That's very interesting because Mark Davis was always disappointed also that he could never make it as a fine as a fine artist mm-hmm. you know he he had that ambition he he made he did many great works but he he just never got recognized by the fine art community for that yeah. work so from um, I've done a lot of interviews with people that have worked at the studio in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. And so this this is like a recurring theme that um, I kind of you know find over and over in people, that the ones that seem to have the strongest um, sense of satisfaction in what they are doing are those that are kind of happiest realizing that the image that you have of yourself when you're 18 or 25 is not going to be the image that you're going to move into when you get older that 
realizing that the skills you have and applying them in the most useful or necessary ways you move through your life is a type of success, that that these people um, tend to be far happier um, at the end of their lives than the ones that keep kind of running up against that closed door into fine arts or, or whatever, whatever it is. So like on the other side of the spectrum, um, there's Bob Gurr. Uh, uh, he was um, um, a vehicle attraction designer for Disney starting in 54. And so what Bob Gurr had gone to school for is that he wanted to be an automotive body designer. He was very interested in how cars looked. Um, and Bob Gurr um, kind of you know, keeps this ambition alive for a while, but he's far more comfortable giving it up when he sees that there's this other path here that's going to lead to a different type of success. And so I think that Gurr now, he's in his 80s, um, young 80s, I think. Um, I think that he has a much deeper sense of his own success because he's been able to kind of adapt into this other world that he didn't initially imagine for himself. Whereas people yeah. like Ward Kimball, despite this tremendous success, really are unable to give up that they didn't fulfill the ambitions of their youth as they got older. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the path to success, too, or, or, or to our um, re- realizing our success and our goals, it's, it's never a straight one. You know, mm-hmm. it's always crooked and you go off in different paths and then you come back to the main one. And, and that's just a part of life. And some people just don't totally grasp that. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, besides besides enjoying your books, I enjoy your podcast. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little about that. Well, we um, it's been going on for like eight years now. Or I don't know. Yeah, something like I've been listening to it for years. Yeah. Um, and so I started doing it when my kids were really young. We have twins. And when they were really young, there wasn't a whole lot of time, time at the house. And I was... Um, posting up uh, in a different in a different iteration of the web i was posting up blog articles and um doing some magazine pieces and things like that and um i had a drive i, I work at a university out here and so i'd drive about uh 45 minutes to an hour into work and then 45 minutes for an hour home from work and i was listening to books on tape back then and um sometimes i'd listen to like the new yorker they had an audio version of the new yorker back then and it was like one of the few times that um i kind of (laughs) had time to kind of like focus in on on things like that when the kids were really young um and on one of the drives i thought like i bet like if i just like read some of those articles out loud i bet there'd be a couple hundred people that would enjoy that um and so i just started reading the articles that i was uh, putting together out loud and that's how the podcast started many years ago and it's kind of Grown out of that, um, there are there are I think there are far more listeners to the podcast now than to anything that I actually write in print at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But um, for the for the most part, there's usually a couple or so shows a month, and they usually tell um, uh, the story of uh, some aspect of the history of the Disney Company. There's like a set of shows that talk about the life of Dick Humor from the really early period of animation in the New York studios up to the 1940s. And then um, last week, I um, put up an interview I did a while ago with uh, Tom Nabby about um, the Disneyland in the 
mid 1950s and mm-hmm. um so so those shows usually have um uh, topical content um for history buffs um since the pandemic's been going on i've also kind of added into that that we're doing a show every week or two that's really trying to look at the um health technical economic impacts of what's happening around us in our own lives um, in terms of how that's shaping what's happening inside the company as well. But that, those are the kind of like the main main pistons that drive the, the podcast. Okay. And what's the name of your podcast? It's um, Disney History Institute podcast. Yeah. Um, so Paul and I used to, Paul Anderson and I, had a blog for a long time. Uh, he started it and that was the name of the blog. And so I think it's more casually known as the DHI podcast now. Just yeah. text the initials. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. If our listeners who enjoy connecting with Walt, you're definitely going to enjoy DHI, Disney History Institute podcast. So, And the Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation, isn't the only Disney history book you've written. Um, you've also written about Walt and Roy Disney and a person we've talked about often on this show – C.V. Wood, and that's titled Three Years in Wonderland. Boy, now talk about a complex relationship there. Yeah, um, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that. I'd be happy to do that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners just briefly what that book's about? Sure. So um, this was a story that uh, uh, Walt really tried to distance the the park from, Um Back in the 1960s, there were some legal issues for that. Um, C.B. Wood um, it was a very bright person. Um, he would also be a person that I would classify as a genius. Um, he was able to fake his way into amazing jobs. He oversaw the production, the engineering production of the Liberation Bomber during the World War II effort. Even though he didn't have a college education, though he convinced a number of many people that he was uh, that he had college uh, degree in uh, engineering, he later oversees the Stanford Research Institute. Um, in part for a while because he's able to convince people that he has a PhD in economics, which is also not true. <laughs> and after that, um, as Part of his work as Stanford uh, SRI, Stanford Research Institute, he meets um, Walt and Roy Disney, and uh, C.V. Wood or Woody has been enamored. He grew up in he he was born in Oklahoma, but he grew up in Texas in Amarillo, and he's been enamored with celebrity culture, and uh, like Walt. He also believes that America, the American public is moving towards a closer relationship with what they see on the screen. And so he would like to become part of this. And so he presents an argument to Roy that he would like to be uh, uh, the first general manager of Disneyland and that he would like to be the vice president of Disneyland Incorporated. Back then, Disneyland was its own business separate from the studio. And Roy thinks that this is going to be a pretty good idea in long large part because Woody is one of the few people on the project that will very publicly stand up against what Walt wants in order to keep things within some sort of financial constraints. And it all goes tremendously well and terrible all at the same time. The (laughs) Disney studio uh, realizes that they, that the moral character of woody is not exactly what they want representing the park and that they're going to need to find a plan to distance 
themselves from Woody shortly after the park opens. But I, I think that the park would never have been finished. There's a good chance that Disneyland would have ended in bankruptcy had Woody not been involved with it. And so he's a tremendously needed person, but also not the person that the company wants there once the project is over. So um, I think it's like an interesting bit of history that there wasn't a whole lot known oh, about. Oh, it is. It is. And I know people are very curious about C.B. Woods, so we'll definitely want to have you back for that. This is a person, we've had Bob Gurr on the show several mm-hmm. times, and I don't know, C.B. Wood came up, I don't know how, and Bob Gurr called him a crook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that sort of uh, took me aback just a bit. There were, so. so that's... <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, this is like the the dichotomy of C.B. Wood. There are people that love, you go out to Lake Havasu, um, which is the community that he develops later in his life. Um, uh, You go out there, everyone I talked to when I spent uh, weeks in Lake Havasu that remembered him, adored him and talked about how generous he was. Um, The people that he grew up with, that he took uh, great care of, all adored him. The Disney people do not like him. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it depends on who you were in, in terms of what you thought about C.B. Wood. Yeah, yeah, he called him either a crook or a con man. It was one or the other. Oh, so con man would probably be. Yeah. Yeah, con, yeah I could see either. Con yeah. man, I think, would probably be closer. Yeah, yeah. So, now, are you are you working on any Disney-related projects right now that you can talk about with our listeners? Oh, I'm, I'm dabbling on a whole whole bunch of things trying to get some things to move forward i want to put together a book on the early history of of uh the florida project of disney world i've been kind of playing with that for a while that's probably the thing that's closest to done i also want to go back to the really early history of animation and talk about how it kind of comes together from the new york schools and from kansas city to really produce what disney's going to do in the 1930s but you know these projects are all all take a long time to to finish up Absolutely. Now, where can our listeners get your book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation, and Three Years in Wonderland? Um, they, they can find them in on Amazon and whatever bookstores happen to be open in the world at the moment, which in <laughs> our neighborhood is, is none. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, the same in mine, too. So, and yeah. then... Are there any social media sites where our listeners listeners can learn more about you and your work? Yeah, probably like the easiest place to find that about me or to find links to the podcast or things like that. It's just through my my personal website, which is uh, www.toddjamespierce.com. And there's links there to, to everything. Okay, great. Well, Todd, this has been wonderful talking with you about Ward Kimball. And I think we've definitely learned why you called him um, the Maverick of Disney Animation. <laughs> so, and I highly recommend to all our listeners um, the book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation, because Todd's only touched the surface of the stories that are in here. And I think that Ward was one of the, we were talking before the show, and I think Ward was one of the most, um, I don't know, complex of all of the nine old men. I mean, he just had so much going on in his inner life and, um, and, and then in his personal life too, just all the things that he was involved in. So it's, it's a really fascinating read on someone that was pivotal in Disney animation. 
Well, thank you very much. And thank you again for having me on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you. It was our pleasure as well. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation that we had with Todd, but it's not over yet because we have to go back and take a look at this week in Disney history. So here we are, the week of August 9th. So, okay, it's Disneyland heavy this week. Okay. So uh, a lot of stuff happened in Disneyland this week, way back in the day. Okay, so August 9th. At Disneyland, a new restaurant opened in Frontierland on August 9th, 1955. And guests are greeted at the door by the restaurant's namesake. What is the name of this new restaurant? Just because you said namesake, I'm going to assume that this is uh, Aunt Jemima and the uh, pancake. Aunt Jemima Pancake House? You sure it's not the Frito Frito Kid? (laughs) Greeting guests? I mean, I didn't think about that, but... No, you are right. Okay. <laughs> it's the Aunt Jemima Pancake House. Uh, a later known as the Riverbell Terrace, the Aunt Jemima Pancake House existed until 1962. And after it sort of absorbed the adjacent Don DeForest Silver Banjo Barbecue Restaurant, it became Aunt Jemima's Kitchen until 1970. So it was around quite a long time. Okay, on August 10th, 1959, Walt Disney reads an article in the New York Times about an upcoming event and immediately sees opportunities for his company. What event did Walt read about? You know, it it seems a little bit early, but my first inkling on this is the World's Fair that's going to be coming up just because... That's, you know, in terms of this time period, I feel like that was one of the the next big things happening. So uh, if it's not that, then I'm not sure what it would be. No, you're right. It's the 1964 World's Fair in New York. Yeah. And and yeah, a lot of pre-planning goes into this. I I think I heard on the news today that, you know, they delayed the Olympics till next year. But there's talk, serious talk of just right out canceling it. Because there's, it's so expensive to put on that even just the planet is so expensive. They're saying if there's even a chance they could be canceled again, um, they're just not going to do it. I, yeah, I guess that. So it should be a shame for the athletes. Oh, yeah. No, especially for the athletes that, you know, they're they're on their last shot or – not even on the opposite of that. It's, you know, it's they're they've been training, they're at their peak, they're ready, it's their best chance, and and they lose out on that. So it'd be sad. It would be. Of course, by the time this is released, we may know the fate of the Olympics, but I hope we can pull them off. I love the Olympics. Me too. So. Okay. All right. August 11th. United States Vice President Richard Nixon and his family, his wife, Pat, and daughters, Trisha and Julie, visit Disneyland for the very first time on August 11th, 1955, along with the Nixons or brothers of Richard and Pat and their children. The vice president is presented with the key to City Hall by the general manager of Disneyland. Who was the general manager that presented the key to the vice president? I believe that we 
I believe I know that who this is because it's we touched on him in the last part of this episode, and that mm-hmm. would be CV Wood. Absolutely, that's why I put this in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, for helping. that's right. It is. It is CV Wood. And the Nixons also met actor Fess Parker, who, of course, is Walt Disney's Davy Crockett. They toured Disneyland extensively, riding several attractions, including the Mark Twain Riverboat, the Jungle Cruise, Rocket to the Moon, Atopia, and they toured the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit. Okay. August 12th. What handsome, debonair, suave, sophisticated, charming, host for the Diz Unplugged, was born on this day. I'm going to say Michael <laughs> Bowling. That's right. <laughs> Very good. I should give you bonus points for this. But that's not really the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this Disney legend was born in Plainview, Nebraska on August 12, 1919. Starting in 1939, This person created colors and mixed paints for the Walt Disney Studios and later served as supervisor of the paint lab. This person mixed paints for virtually every Disney animated project in their 42 years at the company. What is the name of this Disney legend? Uh, Based on what? You described, I, I know it. I'm leaning towards a female, but I'm not, I'm not sure who, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would be so impressed if you knew her name, but I just thought it's a name that needs to be remembered because what she did was so extraordinary. That's Dodie Roberts. Yeah. I would and not have gotten that. <laughs> in, in the, no, I wouldn't have either. Um, in the pre computer days when cell paints were mixed and matched by hand, This, you know, the animation paint mixing was a demanding job requiring both technical and artistic skills. Now, this I didn't know. The Disney studio kept their cell paint mixtures a secret, and mixers were only given partial color information for each batch without knowing what colors the others were adding. Isn't that fascinating? It is, yeah. It wasn't until Roberts was promoted to department supervisor in 1972 that she was trusted with the complete formulas for over 500 paints and hues. So uh, amazing, just amazing. And she once said in an interview, I love puzzles and mixing paint. It was like putting together a puzzle. So... uh, so anyway, but yeah, that I, I, when I read that, I just thought that was fascinating. Oh, so yeah. that's how protective Disney was of the colors they formulated. It's pretty intense. Yeah. Hey, August 13th, The New Adventures of Spin and Marty, Suspect Behavior, airs on The Wonderful World of Disney on August 13th, 2000. This updated version of the 1950s Mickey Mouse serial features cameos by the original Spin and Marty. What are the names of the original actors who portrayed Spin and Marty? Hmm. You know what? I don't think I've ever known their names. <laughs> so. Yeah, I met them. I've seen them at the Walt Disney Family Museum and I think one other event. And that's Tim Considine and David Stollery. Yep, I definitely and- did not know their names. 
Yeah, yeah. And and one of them was really in the cars, I remember. And um so anyway, yeah, so it was yeah, so anyway, they were they were great guys. You know, at the, they were just ordinary guys at the when they were at the Walt Disney Family Museum. That's good to hear. So I never saw this update, The New Adventures of Spin and Marty's Suspect Behavior. Did you see I it? I've not seen that, no. No. I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, so, I uh, believe this is the first time I'm hearing anything about it. Plus, I again, I always thought their names were just Spin and Marty. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So, but the original series was a lot of fun, and Annette would appear in it and stuff. So it was good. So. Okay, August fourteenth. Which Disney character is celebrated on August fourteenth, nineteen thirty nine, at the nineteen thirty nine New York World's Fair? Hmm. I feel like I'm going to say this was probably in the height of Donald's popularity. So I'm actually going to go with Donald. Very good. That's right. Today is Donald Duck Day at the 1939 New York World's Fair. Donald has been flown in from Hollywood to attend the premiere of his latest cartoon, Donald's Penguin, playing at the National Biscuit Theater in the Food Pavilion. Of course, we know the National Biscuit Company today is Nabisco. Um, Donald hands out gifts to 500 lucky children and even takes part in a special parade. Afterwards, Donald is presented with an honorary degree of Doctor of Internal French- International Friendship from Dr. Frank Monahan, a professor of American history at Yale University, during a ceremony held in Carnival Land. And the World's Fair has been running since April 30th in Flushing Meadows, the same location that the 1964-65 World's Fair will take place. So this was a big deal. So, who knew that Donald Duck had a honorary degree from Yale? He deserves it. <laughs> He deserves it. Oh, absolutely. In my opinion. Absolutely. Thank goodness it wasn't like a doctorate in in human behavior from the psychology department. (laughs) Okay. um, August 15th, Walt Disney's first human star and the original Alice of his Alice comedies passed away at age 90 on August 15th, 2009. What is her name? Uh, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Virginia Davies. Davis. Davis. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Disney Disney legend Virginia Davis. That's good. Pulling that out. Did a good job there. So, as a child, Virginia Davis appeared in the first thirteen titles of Walt Disney's Alice comedy series, such as a blend of live action and animation. She was born Virginia Margaret Davis in Kansas City, Missouri on New Year's Eve 1918. She later earned a degree from the New York School of Interior Design and became a decorating editor for the popular 1950s magazine Living for Young Homemakers. I wonder if it's still in publication today. (laughs) In 1963, she began a successful career in the real estate industry in Connecticut and later Southern California. And over the years, Davis remained in contact with the Walt Disney Company and was often a a special guest at such events as the annual Disneyana conventions held at either Disneyland or Walt Disney World. 
So great. You did a great job this week. Thank you. Thank you. You were definitely got expert rating for this week in Disney history. <laughs> I to pull a couple things we're way <laughs> out there, but you know what? I'm, my brain's working tonight. Okay. Well, we had a great three weeks uh, listening to our conversation with uh, Todd James Pierce. And and so, you know, if you found that interesting, learning about Ward Kimball, then do you want to get his book? You know, definitely, because, uh, you know, the, the Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. There are so many more stories in here. And, and you really learn about um, the eccentricities of Ward Kimball. And, uh, and, and there, it's a good read. So, so I hope you enjoy it. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the various shows on the Dis Unplugged podcast network. And then, of course, anytime you need to connect with me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com, Twitter at MBowling121, Facebook at Michael Bowling, Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.